0: which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time this semester, we have started a study of the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, and I see some of you do, which warms my heart, and I want to encourage you, if you're not in the habit of doing that, to go ahead and do it. That collect is a wonderful collect. It's a collect that written by Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the principal architect of the Book of Common Prayer, but he talks about reading, marking, learning, and inwardly digesting. Well, it's very difficult to read if it's not in front of you. It's impossible to mark or learn it or inwardly digest it. So let me just encourage you to bring your Bibles along. You'll find it more helpful if you do. So we are in John chapter 1, and we're going to just go ahead and read through, uh, let's say, about the... I, want to be, I don't want to be too ambitious here because I know how far I can get. Well, we'll go ahead and we'll read through the first 12 verses or so. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. You may have a different translation. Whatever translation you have, I'm sure, is perfectly fine. Sometimes it casts light when we have different translations. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. We'll stop right there. It's often said by people who are skeptical or, or struggling, if God would simply speak to me, then I could believe. If God would do something like he has done in the past, how he parted the Red Sea, how he went as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If God would just act in that kind of dramatic way, well, then I could believe. And, of course, it's the contention of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, that that is exactly what God has done. He has acted in a dramatic way so that you and I might know him, not merely know about him, but come to know him personally. And what's more, he has spoken. He has spoken... In the Scriptures, of course, he has spoken in nature, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. But he has spoken supremely in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, who is not only the supreme word, but John will go on to say the last word as well. Uh, The beginning of John's Gospel is perhaps one of the most famous pieces of literature uh, in all the world. It's not just one of the most famous sections of Scripture, it's one of the most famous pieces of literature anywhere. Those extraordinary words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, John's whole contention, is if you skip ahead to verse 14, is that that Word, and that's going to be the topic of our discussion today, that term Word, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, we said last week, when we started the study of John's Gospel, that there is a sense in which John is simply trying to do what the other Gospels do. We have four different Gospels in the New Testament, all of which purport to tell the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They all do that. And there are certain things that they all contain. They all tell the story of Jesus' death upon the cross, and they all record the story of his resurrection. So they're all intent on doing just that. But we said last week that, as with any famous person, whether it's Winston Churchill or Abraham Lincoln or whoever it is, There are many, many biographies of the individual. And one of the reasons why the early church included all four of these Gospels is because it's through studying all four of them that we get a more well-rounded, multifaceted picture of who Jesus is and of what he came to do and what his ministry was all about. And so it should be no surprise to us that each of the Gospels, while telling the same story, nevertheless emphasize certain aspects of Jesus' life more than others. So, for example, Matthew's gospel is generally recognized as that gospel which is the most Jewish. And Matthew is really intent, while he is certainly talking about all of the things that the others are going to talk about, his real focus is to emphasize Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the one who was long promised, long anticipated in the Law and the Prophets. The fulfillment of all of those centuries of waiting, anticipating. That's Matthew's focus. Mark's focus, Mark, of course, is the shortest of the Gospels. Mark's focus is really to emphasize that Jesus is God's servant. He is the one who came to do God's will here on earth. And he did that supremely by being what Isaiah calls the suffering servant. So in Mark, Jesus is depicted as this one who came not to be served, but to serve and to be God's servant supremely. Luke is unique in that Luke is the only one of the Gospels that actually has a follow-up volume. The book of Luke and the book of Acts go together. They're written by the same person. We know that not only because of the writing style, but they are addressed to the same person. They both are addressed to an individual or a group known as Theophilus. Now, I say it's an individual or a group because that name, that word Theophilus, means beloved of God. So it could be an individual's name, but it could be a community. But Luke has two volumes to it. And what Luke wants to emphasize is that Jesus is the Savior, yes, but he's not merely the Savior of the Jews. He is the Savior of all, of Jews and Gentiles alike. And so you can see Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke. Two Jews, Gentiles play a prominent role, but that is particularly true in the second volume, which tells the story of the early church. The book of Acts begins in an interesting way. He says, in my former book, that is the Gospel, I talked about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now that word begin implies a continuous action. As if to suggest that in this second volume, I'm going to talk about all that Jesus continued to do and teach. Except for the fact that in the very first chapter, Jesus ascends. So what's Luke talking about there? What he means is that Jesus continues to be active in the world, through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the lives of the apostles, supremely Peter and Paul. And that's really what the book of Acts is all about. So Luke's Gospel emphasizes Jesus as the Savior, but of all men. He came as the Savior of Jews and Gentiles alike. And then John. What is John to emphasize? John wants us to understand that that one who walked the dusty roads of Palestine. That one who ate with his disciples and slept on the hard ground. That one who did not even have a place to lay his head. That one who performed miracles and taught in parables. That one is in fact God. God of God. Light of light. The one by whom all things were made. Incidentally, you may have noticed... I'm not going to, I would go back to that opening screen, but I'm afraid I won't be able to work it out. Um, So, um, but you may have recalled last week that the opening scene, um, the opening screen that I had up there was a depiction of an eagle lectern, like the eagle lectern that we have at St. Philip's. Uh, Each of the four evangelists has a symbol. Mark, for example, is the symbol of the lion, Luke is the symbol of the ox, Matthew is the symbol of the man, and John is the symbol of an eagle. That's how they're depicted you ever noticed that it's always an eagle lectern that we see in churches? There's a reason for that. It's because John's Gospel is considered to be the supreme gospel when it comes to Christology. It has the highest Christology. It is Jesus Christ as God. Now, of course, his divinity is fleshed out in the other Gospels. But that's John's special plea for us to understand that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God. Now, you could just imagine how revolutionary that would have been to Jews. Because to them, God was transcendent. God was removed. God was the one who was up there on the mountain in fire and lightning. And yes, he did travel as a pillar of cloud and as a pillar of fire, but you'll notice that he was always outside the camp. Well, what John is saying to the Jews is that that one came down and walked among us. That word became flesh. And we'll talk more about that word, but the word flesh is a very interesting word. It's the Greek sarks. It's what you and I got up with this morning. It's what we bathed. It's what some of us shaved this morning. It's what is capable of decaying, of dying, of getting diseased. God took on flesh that was an extraordinary claim it was an extraordinary claim in the first century it's still an extraordinary claim if you think about it in the 21st century God coming down and becoming a part of his created order and that is John's special emphasis and that is why the church has always recognized John as being unique as being unique Now, if what John is saying is true, then there are a number of practical implications for your life and for mine that follow. First of all, knowing Jesus is the equivalent of knowing God. To know Jesus Christ is to know God. So when Peter and Andrew, James and John and all the rest walked with Him, they were literally walking with God. God. Making himself known. The medieval theologians used to refer to the deus absconditus. That is to say, the hidden God. But what John is declaring to us is that God made himself known. Pulled off the veil. So, to know Jesus Christ is to know God. And not only to know God, but to know what God is like. You know, many people can come to the conclusion that there is a God. They look around and they recognize that there is a God. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. If you keep your finger there, and John, those of you who have been in the study on Romans, we've been looking at this a little bit. Romans chapter 1 speaks of what is known as general revelation. And here's what Paul says in that letter. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. When Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, what he was basically saying is there is some good news. It's a good news of salvation, and it's a salvation that you need. Why? He said because the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God. The judgment of God. And why is the wrath of God, the judgment of God coming? It is coming, Paul says, because men have suppressed the truth. Now I've pointed out in that Romans class, and I'll point out to you today, Paul does not say that men and women are ignorant of the truth. God has a great deal of compassion for people who are ignorant. Thanks be to God. He has great compassion for those who are ignorant, for those who do not understand, like the man who came to him on one occasion and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What God doesn't have patience for is a suppression of the truth, a willful refusal to believe in spite of the evidence. That was the problem, incidentally, for the Pharisees. You'll recall that in John's Gospel, we'll get to it sometime later, when Nicodemus came under the cover of darkness to Jesus. He came and he said these words. He said, We know that you are a man who has come from God, for no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. Now, who's the we? Well, it's pretty clear in light of what has just gone before. We're told that Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the people. That is to say, a member of the Sanhedrin. So when he comes and he says to Jesus, We know that you are a man who has come from God, because no one could do the things that you were doing except if he were from God. It's clear John is talking about the Pharisees. We the Pharisees. We the Sanhedrin know. And yet you'll notice that all through the Gospels, we'll talk a little bit about it in the sermon today, all through the Gospels, the Pharisees refused to believe in Jesus. How many of you have ever heard of the unforgivable sin? In the Scriptures, there's a reference to the unforgivable sin. Every sin may be forgiven except for what? It's not just blasphemy, but it's a specific kind of blasphemy. Against the Holy Spirit. Now why is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit the unforgivable sin? What's the role of the Holy Spirit in the Godhead? To convict the world of sin and the need for righteousness. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who comes and convicts us of our guilt and of our need for Christ. Well, what happens if you're convicted of your sin and your need for Christ and you still refuse to believe? What sacrifice is there for sin then? There is none, you see. Because you have rejected it. You know that it is the truth, but you reject it willfully. And that's why it's called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's an unforgivable sin because you know the truth, you refuse to believe it. That was the problem for the Pharisees. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 1. He said, men know the truth because God has made it known, but they refuse to believe it. He goes on to say this in verse 19 of chapter 1, For what may be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that men are without excuse. That's a pretty damning statement if you think about it. Men are without excuse. Because God has made himself known. But what John is telling us and reminding us is that we need this fuller revelation of God Because while God reveals himself in nature, you can look at the world around us, you can see the order that exists in the creation, and you can come to the conclusion that there has to be a God behind that. I mean, if you take a look at a fine Swiss watch, you take the back off it, and you look at the works, you can come to the conclusion there had to be a watchmaker. This this didn't happen by chance or by accident. William Paley understood this back in the 18th century. But that cannot tell you what that God is like. If you look at creation, creation can give you a mixed message as to what God is like, the Creator is like. There are beautiful things in creation. There are terrible things in creation. Nature, red in tooth and claw. So if we want to know what God is actually like, what we need is a fuller revelation than God in the created order. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ is. If you want to know what God is like, if you're confused as to what God is like, John would say, look at Jesus. Look to Jesus Christ. Look no further. And you will come to an understanding of what God is actually like. His character. His demeanor. Here's something else that is important. We can know that God is not disinterested. You know, it's one thing to believe in a God like a watchmaker who... Winds up the universe, sets it on the mantle and lets it run on its own and He does not interfere. But if Jesus Christ is God, what that tells us is that the God who created everything, atoms, galaxies, universes, stars, quasars, black holes, whatever, that God is concerned for us. We are not just specks of cosmic dust. God is deeply concerned for us. That's what Jesus being God teaches us. Here's the final thing. It teaches us then that the central event of Jesus' life and ministry has great significance. If Jesus Christ is God and the central event of His life was His death and His resurrection then that tells us that these events are the most important events in all of history. So that is John's contention as he begins this Gospel. That Jesus Christ is very God of very God. And the implications, the ripple effects for your life and for mine are profound. They are significant. Now, as we said, God has spoken. That's John's contention. Paul had also said that God has spoken. But here, he is speaking in a very specific way. And it's interesting to note that Paul acknowledges that fact. Keep your finger there in John and flip over for just a moment to the book of Acts. That's the very next book, so it's not hard to find. But go to Acts for just a moment. And I want you to go to Acts chapter 16. Those of you who have been through the Acts study, you may recall this. Those of you who went with me to Greece may recall standing on the very site where this event took place. Paul was visiting the ancient city of Athens. And uh, Athens was uh, an amazing city in in many ways. Um, It was a city that, at the time that Paul went there, was in the late afternoon of its glory. I've always thought that of all the cities that Paul wanted to visit in the ancient world, he was probably most excited about going to Athens. Because Paul really was an intellectual. That becomes very clear when you read through his writings. Uh, He grew up in the ancient city of Tarsus, which was one of the great university cities of the ancient world. There's every indicator that Paul, in addition to his very fine religious education, which he received in Jerusalem under one of the foremost rabbis of the day, that Paul also had a very fine classical education. Because we're going to see that when he gets to Athens, he is able to quote from some of the very poets and philosophers that the Greeks were familiar with, people like Aretas and Cleanthes and so forth. And Peter and John would have never been able to do that. Common fisher folk, they would have never been able to do it. But Paul was able to hold his own. And so I have always thought that when Paul was going to Athens, he must have been going there with with a great deal of anticipation. Somebody said it would be like a man from Harvard going to visit Oxford or Cambridge for the very first time. A university very much like his own, uh, a city very much like his own, but older and even more distinguished. So I always imagine Paul getting there and being very excited when he gets to Athens, but we're told that when he arrived in the city, he was very disappointed. He was very disappointed because this was supposed to be the intellectual center of the ancient world, and what he finds in Athens is that the whole city was filled with idols. Now as a Jew, remember, he'd come to the understanding that there was only one God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, but Here were these people, they believed in all sorts of gods and deities. They used to say that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. And if you've ever been to Athens, you can see that that is true. There are monuments and temples absolutely everywhere, they're still there. So what happens when Paul gets there? Well, let's take a look. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... As his companions, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was filled with idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching what? Jesus. And the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which was a major debating society, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, I love this, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. For centuries, we didn't know where that was, but it has actually been discovered. Many, many altars like this in antiquity, as a matter of fact. Some even, uh, a loose translation would say, dedicated to whom it may concern. But Paul goes on to say, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The hidden God I proclaim to you. I'm making him known to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the earth skip ahead to verse 29 being then god's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man the times of ignorance god overlooked there it is there's the echo of romans the times of god, of innocence god overlooked the time of ignorance god ignored But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says a number of things. God's ignorance is past. God's patience for ignorance is past. God once overlooked that but there's no reason for it anymore. You once worshipped an unknown God, but that God is being made known to you. And God has proven that He is who He claimed to be by raising Him from the dead. That's what John is all about here. And as I said, he begins to tell this story of the One who is the Creator of the heavens and the earth who came down be the Savior of all mankind, it begins that in this most extraordinary way. Echoes of the book of Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The most important term in these opening chapters is that term Logos. Now you probably have heard that term over the years, Logos. Literally translated, it means Word. In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. Now John is doing something really ingenious here. as He begins to tell the story of Jesus. As I said, every one of the Gospels begins in a different way. Matthew and Luke tell the story of Jesus by talking about his human genealogy, tracing his lineage through Mary and through Joseph. Mark begins his Gospel with John's baptism in the Jordan River. As far as he's concerned, that's where the rubber hits the road when Jesus actually begins his public ministry. But John takes us back into the midst of time, before time, to talk about the creative word in the beginning. Now, any Jew reading this gospel, and remember, we pointed out last week that this gospel was formed in a community of nonconformist Jews just outside of Jerusalem. Any Jew reading the beginning of this Gospel, the beginning of this biography of Jesus, and hearing those words would immediately have been taken back to the very first chapters of the Bible. There's echoes there. We've already seen that. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God said. Let me just go ahead and read those opening verses of Genesis chapter 1. If you were a Jew, you would have known this. In the same way that if somebody was writing a book And they used the phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident. You would have known that he was harking back to something else. Genesis begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's how Genesis begins. Now you go to John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. That's echoes of Genesis. So a Jew, when he reads these opening chapters, he's saying, oh yes, this sounds familiar to me. And yes, he would have resonated with that. He would have said, yes, that's right, the Word. God spoke, and all things came into existence. You know, it's interesting Ancient religions believed that the universe came into being out of things that already existed. Sometimes it was the result of some violent act, some battle between other gods. Sometimes it was the result of a goddess giving birth to something. But the universe was made of stuff that already existed. But Genesis says something that is absolutely earth-shattering, no pun intended. He says, in the beginning, God. You'll notice the Bible does not begin with any philosophical arguments for the existence of God. It simply begins with God speaking and all things that exist come into existence by the sheer power of his word. The technical phrase for this is ex nihilo, out of nothing. Now what John is saying is that in the beginning there was the word, the word was with God, all things were made through him, everybody's with him up to this point. But then, what he's going to go on and say in verse 14 is that one who called all things into existence, he has come down among us. That would have been an extraordinary claim for the Jews. It would have been an extraordinary claim for the Greeks as well. Remember, this gospel was written not just for Jews, it was written for Greeks as well. I pointed out that one of the uh, earliest manuscripts that we have of the gospel of John have been found. In the wrappings of a mummy. Where? In Alexandria, Egypt. This is a gospel for Jews and Gentiles alike. The Jews would have been shocked by what John is saying. The Greeks would have been equally shocked. That's a Greek term, logos. And it meant something very specific to the Greeks of Jesus' day. It was a phrase that was originally coined by a 6th century philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. He lived in the city of Ephesus. And he was going to have a profound impact upon every successive philosopher that came. Plato, Socrates, all of them. Heraclitus was the man who said that the world was in a constant state of flux. That if you step into a river, if you ever had a philosophy class, you've probably heard about this. You step into a river and step back out of it and step into the river again, it's not the same river. The river has flowed on. It has changed And he said, the world is like that. The world is always in a constant state of change, a constant state of flux. Nothing remains the same. But one of his disciples asked the question, well, they said, if that is true, then why do we not see chaos in the world? If everything is always changing, nothing remains the same, there appears to be order in the universe. Why is that? And Heraclitus said, that is because there is a Logos. There is a word that governs the change. Now that was something that many philosophers caught on to as time went by. What John does in an ingenious way for both the Jews in the way that he begins this Gospel but also for the Gentiles is he says that logos, that power which governs the world and just doesn't govern the change that you see in the universe, actually created this universe and controls it, that one became flesh and dwelt among us. You ought to go home this afternoon and just think about that for a moment. You know, sometimes we look at our problems and they seem enormous to us. But would you realize that the One who created the heavens and the earth, who controls the universe, He's not merely concerned with the rolling of the spheres in their orbits. He is concerned with you and your doubts and perplexities. That is an extraordinary thing. And there's only one religion in the world that claims it, and that's Christianity. When people say, oh, every other religion, they're all basically the same. They have never read the opening chapter of John because nothing could be further from the truth. And here's what's interesting. John says that Word was with God, and He was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He says that that word which became flesh is light and life. I want you to understand that every term that John uses employs here in this opening chapter is pregnant with meaning and significance. When he says that the logos, the word which became flesh, which we know is Jesus Christ, when he says that Jesus is light and life, what does he mean? Well, he means a number of things. To the Jews, he would have meant the giver of physical life. If you go back to the book of Genesis, we're told that God formed Adam from the dust of the earth. A uh, picture sort of a sod statue. And when I think of the first man, woman, now we don't know exactly how this is, there's a lot of symbolic language that is being used there in the opening chapters of Genesis, but I always imagine the perfect man, you know, like the statue of David, just, just perfect. But we're told there was one thing that was wrong. He was not alive. Until God did something. Until God breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living being. You've seen a dead body. There it is. It's lifeless. There's no breath in the body. That's what Adam was like, but God breathed into him the breath of life. When it says that the word is light and life, the Jews would have understood what that meant. He is the one who gives life to all things. The word there for life or or breathing in is the word ruach. It's an interesting word. Ruach means spirit, wind, or breath. The Greek equivalent of that is spiritus. And it can also be translated as wind, breath, or spirit. And I know we're running out of time, so what I want to do real quickly is just ignore that last part on the screen. And I want you to turn to John chapter 3 for just a moment. And we'll get to this in a little bit. But turn to John chapter 3. To this extraordinary story of Jesus and Nicodemus, I've already alluded to it. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God were with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, there's the word Spirit, the Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament is ruach, wind, breath, or spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see how he goes back and forth between those various phrases? Now here's the point. Nicodemus has heard about Jesus. He's curious about Jesus. He comes under the cover of darkness. And he says all these wonderful things about Jesus. We know that you're a man come from God because no one could do the things that you were doing unless God were with him. You'd expect Jesus to say, well, thank you, Nicodemus. Come on in. Let's have a cup of tea and let's talk about this. But instead, Jesus simply said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can never see the kingdom of heaven. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a scholar. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest body of authority within Judaism. And he is completely confused by what Jesus said. Born again. And One of the reasons he's confused is because the Greek actually holds the meaning born again like the first time. That's why Nicodemus follows up with that question. How can a man be born when he is old? How can he go back into his mother's womb? That doesn't make any sense to me. But Jesus wasn't talking about when Nicodemus was born. He was talking about the birth of mankind. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is this. He's saying, look, what happened to Adam at the very beginning has to happen to you. Adam was perfect, but he was not alive. And he wasn't alive until God did what? Breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living being. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, the same thing has to happen to you. You are physically alive, you're walking around, but you're not spiritually alive. And flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. If you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be born again like the first time. God has to do for you what He did for Adam. He has to breathe into you the breath of life. That's what John is saying there at the beginning. That's who this God is. It's the same God who does that for you and for me. That's why this Gospel is so extraordinary. John has packed these opening verses with so much it's almost impossible to take it in. So when he says that word is life, this is what he means. But he says it's not only life, he's also light. You have to remember what light did in the ancient world. The light really had two functions in the ancient world. The only way you had light, incidentally, in the ancient world was by means of a fire. They didn't have incandescent light bulbs and that sort of thing. The only way that you had light in the ancient world was by means of a fire, and a fire did two things. It brought illumination, and it brought warmth. That's what a fire does. It brings illumination, it brings warmth. And of course, one of the things that light does is it exposes. It exposes things. When John says that the Logos, who is Jesus Christ, came to be light, this is what he means. He means he is the one that warms our heart. That's the way Charles Wesley and John Wesley described their own conversion. They said our hearts were strangely warmed. He brings illumination, he helps us to understand the world, understand ourselves, understand things in a way that we never did before. But he also exposes. He exposes all of our faults, all of our flaws. I've often said that this is the reason why you always have a romantic dinner by candlelight. As opposed to being under fluorescent lights. Why? Because the fluorescents expose everything. And nobody likes to be exposed, but that's what light does. It's No mistake that most crimes take place under the cover of darkness. If You hear somebody outside your house, what do you do? You turn on the light, and that's what Jesus Christ comes to do comes to bring illumination, to give us understanding. But he exposes our sin and our need for salvation. And then when we embrace him, he brings warmth to our heart. The big question, the question that Paul was asking there in Romans, is what is our response to the light when it comes into the world? He was in the world, and the world knew him. But the world refused to accept Him. That's what John is saying at the beginning. What this also means is that the world in which you and I live is dark. One of the reasons the light had to come is because we live in a darkened world. And all you have to do is watch one episode of the news to realize how dark the world really is. But John is saying there is one who's come into the world the one who created all things, the one who holds all things together, the one who gives life to all men that they might see the kingdom of heaven. And he has come to bring illumination. He has come to expose the darkness. He has come to warm our hearts and to give us a knowledge of God. And here's one of the most shocking things of all. He comes as the light. And when He brings us into fellowship with Him, He then makes us the light. Jesus in Matthew's version of the Gospel, this is why you see some overlap between the Gospels. Jesus in Matthew's version of the Gospel says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me shall never walk in darkness. But then He turns to His disciples and He says, and you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. John says all of that in just those opening verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the light and the life of men. The question to ask is, Is that Jesus Christ your God? Is He your light? Is He your life? And are you, by the way you are living your life, reflecting His glory out into the world? We are not the light in the same sense that Jesus is the light. We are the light in the way that the moon is the light. He is the sun. We simply reflect His glory. But you know, even the moon can be bright. You have a cloudless sky, and it's a full moon. It's a glorious thing. That's what John wants for us. We talked about this last week. If you go to the very end of the gospel, John, as he's wrapping things up, says these words. He said, Jesus did many other things that are not written in this book. He'll go on to say, In fact, if they were all written down, the world could not contain the books. He said, but these have been written for one purpose. That you may know Jesus Christ. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. That's why we study the Gospel of John. That we might know that One who created all things, holds all things together, who is the light and life of all men. And that by knowing Him, not simply knowing about Him, but knowing Him personally, we might know the life that He comes to bring. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks and praise for these opening verses of this extraordinary Gospel, pregnant with meaning for Jews and for Gentiles alike, and having tremendous practical application for the way we live, even as 21st century men and women. We pray, Father, that as we make our way through this Gospel, that that One who came down and took on flesh, who is the light and life of men, might make Himself known to us in a true and profound way that we might reflect His glory in all the world, that others in coming to know us may come to know Him who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.